Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. And for those of you who are in the United States, happy 4th of July. Because today is the 4th of July and I was thinking ahead, for those in America, 4th of July is supposed to be a celebration of freedom. But as I've been deconstructing and as I've been learning about Christian nationalism and racism and a whole bunch of things, I realized that today is both nostalgic and there's a lot of traditions that I love about this holiday. And it's also something I have mixed feelings about because while the country of the United States of America was founded today and it was supposed to stand for freedom, as we well know, we are still fighting for freedom for certain individuals and for certain cultures and certain races in our country. So With that in mind, I wanted to talk about freeing ourselves mentally from indoctrination, and really what came up was the BITE model. If you haven't heard about Steve Hassan's BITE model of authoritarian control, oh my gosh, all of Steve Hassan's work I have completely immersed myself in. It has been so eye-opening. Go look him up on YouTube. Go look him up on freedomofmind.com. You guys, his work for the past 25, 30 years has been solely focused on cults, high demand religions, and authoritarian groups, and it is absolutely enlightening. I don't know if you're like me, but all growing up, I grew up in a high demand religion, and I call it that for a reason because there is definitely some authoritarianism there, there's some control authoritarianism, I think, can be found not just in religion, but in politics, in family systems, in relationships, and in other kinds of groups like educational groups. It can be found in MLMs. So this is really important to know, especially if you've come from a high-demand religion or an authoritarian background with your family. We become more susceptible to mind control, we become more susceptible to undue influence because that is the way we've been conditioned. And so I'm hoping that today, just talking about the bite model, I'm actually going to be reading through some of Steve Hassan's bullet points and telling you about my own experiences and some of the experiences of my clients. And just pause throughout this episode, pause, think through whether you've experienced something similar, what that looked like. And I also want you to keep in mind, sometimes authoritarian control is more prominent at certain times in your religious experience. So for instance, growing up, I was raised in a congregation that was much more low demand than mainstream Mormonism. And so my growing up experience was a lot more tolerant. It was a lot more inclusive. And yet, then I moved 
and went to school at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, and there it was much more tightly controlled. The undue influence was a lot more apparent at BYU, and I would say that is where I really started to have thought reform. And we're going to talk about all of these words more in depth next week when I've returned from Texas and I can pull out all the research. This is kind of a quick podcast that I'm doing before I hit the road. And this is something I've been wanting to talk about for months. And it's something I have studied for a couple of years now. And I thought, you know what, we're just going to go over this small little piece because it's really going to inform next week's podcast. So Hang in there with me. I think this is actually going to be really fun, sort of a story time, if you will. A quick note, this is a trigger warning. You knew it was coming. This episode, we will be mentioning things like rape and sexual assault, physical torture, because those are on the extreme ends of authoritarian control. And please feel free to skip if that feels like it would be too much. We will not be getting into the details, but we will be mentioning those topics. So be aware of that before we deep dive into the bite model and authoritarian control tactics. I really want to start at some of my earliest memories here. My mother was a convert to Mormonism, and she came from a very devout Methodist family, And she has several siblings. The one she's closest to, she has five sisters that she's very close to. And all of those found their own brand of Christianity. One of my aunts became fundamentalist Southern Baptist. Several of them went to non-denominational churches. And my mom joined Mormonism. Now, my Mormon mother and my Southern Baptist aunt lived very close to each other. We lived in the same small town. And our Mormon chapel was actually in the same neighborhood with my Southern Baptist aunt. And we would see her all the time. She was such a nice woman. She would have my sister and I over for sleepovers. She had all boys. And so having my sister and I over, she'd brush our hair and braid our hair and cook with us in the kitchen. And I loved my time with my aunt. And yet at the same time, I also have memories of my aunt screaming at my mother as we're peeling out of the driveway, you're going to hell, you're in a cult. And my mom feeling really defensive and honestly sort of inoculating us against this idea that we could ever be in a cult. And here are some of the things that my mom would bring up that My aunt just didn't have all of the knowledge or understanding, and so therefore she didn't know what she was talking about. The Southern Baptists hated the Mormons, and so therefore she had been poisoned by their rhetoric. I was told that it couldn't possibly be a cult because millions of people believed it. I was told it couldn't possibly be a cult because we believed in Jesus Christ just like every other Christian sect. I was told it couldn't possibly be a cult because look at all the good people I knew inside the cult. There were so many good people, and it was true. I was surrounded by loving, kind, compassionate people. I was also surrounded by people who were jerks, too. There's both, in and outside of religion. 
But my mom would point to her friends and the people who treated me like family and would say, look at all of these kind people. It couldn't possibly be a cult because the people are good and they're kind. And the scripture that would often come up is, by their fruits ye shall know them. And I saw a lot of good fruit, especially as a child growing up. There was a lot of good going on. And so I thought I couldn't possibly be in a cult. So as I grew up, when people would throw at me, you're in a cult, I had been raised with all kinds of inoculation against that accusation. And I was able to reframe it and be like, there's no way I'm in a cult. You're just misinformed. What I've learned since then is that cult behavior is actually present in a lot of human organizations and family systems and relationships. A cult can be as small as two people with one narcissistic authoritarian leader and a submissive follower. We see this a lot in narcissistic codependent relationships, but it can be as big as millions of people. And it's not size that determines whether it's a cult. It's not even unorthodox beliefs that determines whether something is a cult. You can believe really, really wonky things. You can believe some things that are really outlandish and outside the social norms, and that doesn't necessarily make it a cult either. How new the organization is doesn't determine whether something is a cult. What determines if something is a cult is whether they exercise undue influence, authoritarian control, and mind control behaviors. Some would call that brainwashing. And we're going to get into all of those various terms next week. But I really want to dive in today and talk about the four places where undue influence occur in organizations and family systems so that you can get curious about both your religion your family system, and any other organizations you might belong to and decide, am I experiencing authoritarian control? Am I experiencing cult tactics? And so I think what's more important here, and I really love how Steve Hassan puts this, it's not so much labeling whether something's a cult or not a cult. It's identifying the behaviors that create undue influence in our lives and really keep us from critically thinking and making informed consent decisions and making decisions with informed consent. So the bite model refers to four kinds of authoritarian control. Behavior for the B, I is information, T is thought, and E is emotional control. So we're going to go through and pull these apart. He has several bullet points here. I'm going to put the link to his website, freedomofmind.com, where you can actually go through and visually see this if you're a visual learner. You can listen while looking at the chart and pause at any time, take notes, really think, dig deep into your memories and ask yourself, does this apply overall to my religious or family system? And are there times where maybe this does apply when it doesn't apply as much in other situations? Okay, let's start with behavior control. The overarching theme here is that they regulate an individual's physical reality. So we're talking all aspects of life. 
They dictate where, how, and with whom the member lives and associates or isolates. And this doesn't have to be a doctrine that's preached over the pulpit. This can be something that's implied or something that you kind of subtly get in trouble for or shunned for if you don't conform to the implied social expectation. So, for instance, I have fundamentalist clients who as children were only allowed to play with other children in their congregation because other Christians weren't real Christians. And then, of course, you know, don't even get me started on Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, or Adventists, or Buddhists, or Jewish people. They were only allowed to play with an insular group of kids that went to their congregation. That is dictating where, how, and with who you live and associate. This can also show up in dictating that you can only date members of the congregation or members of the religion, or that you can only date members of the religion that are in good standing that are living up to certain social standards. They dictate when, how, and with who the member has sex. If there are doctrines about when you can have sex and when it's appropriate and how and how you should be dressed or with whom you can have sex, they're dictating to you how you live your life. And again, this is all on a spectrum, you guys. It can be everything from very mild to very, very violent and controlling. I think a lot of times when we think about authoritarian control, we think about things that happened like in North Korea where there is caning and there's physical punishment and there's violence that happens when you don't live up to the expectations of the authoritarian leader or the group. But it can be milder too from just disapproving looks or mild shaming as well. So it's not a all or nothing thing. This is not either it's an authoritarian group or it's not. It's more of a buildup. The more of these things ring true for your group, the more authoritarian and high demand it is, the more undue influence there is, the less ability to be individual and diverse and authentic, and the more harmful and destructive the organization or the family system is. So as we're going through this, understand that There may be some of these that are very mild and some of these that are very prominent in whatever organization or system you're scrutinizing and that it's on a continuum, okay, from low demand, high diversity and individuality to high demand, low diversity and individuality, So keep that in mind that it is on a spectrum. And just because there are organizations that are worse than yours doesn't necessarily make yours healthy. Okay, they control the types of clothing and hairstyles you're allowed to wear. This was a big one for me. I remember shortly before I left, I already had questions and I was in a leadership position with women who oversaw other women's groups in our bigger, broader area. And I was sitting in what was called a ward conference. I was in another congregation and I was there to give talks and to build relationships with women in that congregation. And I was sitting in the pew and one of the other women in the leadership position with me looked around and she said, I just love coming to other congregations because 
it's the same as my own congregation. And it's like blinders were taken off of my eyes. And she said, that person reminds me of sister so-and-so. And that person reminds me of brother so-and-so. And she went down the list and I started looking around and there were only three, four hairstyles that were different that I could see on the women. Many of them were wearing the same sort of skirt, the same sort of cardigan, the same layers. They had very similar makeup. There was no one with colored hair. There was no one with very, very, very short hair. There was no one with any sort of wild hairstyle, very few tattoos, no face piercings whatsoever. And I started looking around and it felt like the Stepford Wives. And I looked at my own clothing. I was wearing the same LuLaRoe skirt, the same Down East basic shirt, and the same cardigan from Target that every single person around me was wearing. Different print, maybe. Same style. We were all dressed so similarly. We had similar mannerisms, similar hairstyles. If you're looking around and you're seeing homogeny, there's behavior control going on, whether it's verbal and explicit or whether it is much more covert and it's merely suggested and there are shame and guilt barriers in place to keep people in line. They regulate your diet. They tell you what kind of food and drink is appropriate to consume. And there may be hunger and or fasting that goes along with your religion. In Mormonism, we had a monthly fast where we were not supposed to eat or drink for at least two meals. Most people interpreted that to mean 24 hours. So I went 24 hours without any water and without any food. And I often felt really awful because our bodies are not supposed to go 24 hours without water. So that was something we were supposed to do to draw close to God. And I often just felt sick and we and my blood sugar would get really wonky. But they also regulated diet. We had something called the word of wisdom where we weren't allowed to drink tea or coffee, no alcohol or drugs. We were also supposed to eat meat sparingly. We were supposed to eat a lot of wheat, a lot of vegetables and fruits. So <laughs> I remember when I did a Whole30 diet, I got a lot of grief from active members because I wasn't eating wheat. I was cutting out wheat to see if it would help with inflammation. And there was some shame and some guilting going on there because I was choosing something different than what the word of wisdom said for my diet. There can be manipulation and deprivation of sleep. So this doesn't happen in like mainstream Mormonism, but if you go on a mission, you may work until late. You may have to wake up at the crack of dawn. You may have to wake up at 6 a.m. So deprivation of sleep can happen there. Deprivation of sleep definitely happened to me whenever I was a high school student. So high school students in the Mormon church are asked to go to early morning seminary if they live outside of Utah. And so I would wake up at 530 in the morning to get ready for the school day so I could be at the church building by six o'clock, have an hour of Bible study or Book of Mormon study or Doctrine and Covenant study 
before heading up to the high school, completing a full day of high school, a full evening and afternoon of extracurricular activities and homework. I'd usually fall in bed about 11 o'clock or midnight, and then I'd have to wake up again at 5.30 in the morning to begin getting ready for school. And so I was definitely sleep deprived. There were times where, thank my lucky stars, I had a mother who understood that I needed eight to nine hours of sleep a night and that I was in a phase of growth that is equivalent to what a baby undergoes. Like mentally, physically, I was growing and changing at such a rapid rate. I was eating like crazy and I needed sleep because of all of the growth. And my mom understood every six to eight weeks, I would crash from all of the busy work I was doing and she would allow me to sleep for 24 hours and I would. I would go to bed one night. I'd sleep through the whole next day. I might wake up to go to the bathroom or to get something to eat, but I'd sleep all the way through to the next morning until I needed to get ready for seminary again. So I would miss about four, maybe five days of seminary every year simply because I was so exhausted. And so sleep deprivation did happen at certain parts of my development because of religious expectations. All right, financial exploitation, manipulation, or dependence. We often see like prosperity gospel, give us your thousand dollars and the windows of heaven will be open. Tithing can fall under this umbrella especially when we are demanding tithing from people who cannot feed themselves, pay their bills, clothe their children, or care for other necessities that they have. If we're having a multi-hundred billion dollar corporation demanding a pittance from people who are barely scratching by, that is financial exploitation. It's financial abuse. They restrict leisure, entertainment, and vacation time. So if you find that you feel guilty, if there are indoctrinated messages that you should never be idle, that an idle mind is the devil's playground, for instance, or that your time here is limited and you're going to be held accountable for how productive you are with your time here, or they physically restrict you from taking vacations going home to see family or restricting your leisure, or if they restrict your entertainment, they tell you what you can watch and what you can't watch. For instance, in LDS societal norms, some would say this is just the culture. It's very frowned upon to watch R-rated movies. For some, they take it even further and say PG-13. I was definitely told if I didn't want my children to watch it that I shouldn't watch it myself as an adult. But there are some very difficult things we need to confront, like the Holocaust, like racism, like violence, like war, that I was largely ignorant of because I couldn't watch R-rated topics. It's not even that it was an R-rated movie. It's that the topics were so graphic and so violent that it was difficult to depict them without an R rating. And so I was very sheltered from a lot of the harm that was happening in the world and genocide and some of the atrocities because those things were R-rated. If you're restricted on music you can listen to or entertainment you can listen to, if they dictate to you 
instead of you dictating to yourself, it's a problem. Major time spent with group indoctrination and rituals and or self-indoctrination, including the internet. So if you are told you must be at your meetings every week, if there are several meetings a week that you're required to go to, if on top of that you're required to do personal study every day or personal research that's all approved by the church or the organization, chances are you're being indoctrinated. That's authoritarian control. If you have to be immersed in it over and over again, or the threat is that you would fall away, that's indoctrination. Permission required for major decisions. So if you need to ask an ecclesiastical leader whether you can get on birth control, whether you can have a vasectomy, whether you can get a divorce, whether you can get married, whether you should have a baby, whether you should go to college, if you have to ask for permission to make these decisions, authoritarian control is at play. Rewards and punishments used to modify behaviors, both positive and negative. So if there are rewards for doing it the way the church wants you to, like higher callings or praise or awards or certifications or acknowledgements, or if there are punishments like you can't go to the temple or you can't participate in certain ceremonies, you can't bless your baby, you can't hold the priesthood, you can't hold certain callings, you can't say certain prayers, you can't take the sacrament or communion, that's authoritarian control. If they discourage individuation and encourage groupthink, again, that Stepford Wives feeling, right? If everybody feels homogenous, that's a red flag. They impose rigid rules and regulations. They punish disobedience by beating, torture, burning, cutting, rape, or tattooing and branding. This is one that did not happen in the Mormon church, but this does happen in other religious sects. It definitely happens in some self-improvement cults. Uh, Nixium is what comes to mind. I think that's what it's called. I was just reading about that. I will check that and put that in the show notes if I'm wrong about that. But Nexium is a cult that was all about self-improvement and enlightenment. And as you progressed in the cult, there was mutilation and branding and rape that was happening. Be aware that that is something to consider. They threaten harm to family and friends. Now, you guys, I think I first thought of this as physical harm to family and friends. But this is also if they're threatening harm to your family and friends on the other side after we die. I remember there were several times that I was told if I fell away from the church, my children would go to outer darkness, that they would be tortured with their conscience of sin all because of me and my bad decisions that I wouldn't be able to be with my family forever. Think of the sorrow and the sadness that my mother and my ancestors would feel because I'm not there with them. So that's manipulation as well, not just physical or emotional violence here while we're living, but if you're threatened with your family being in hell or outer darkness or being kept from your family and 
being told that you would be responsible for sorrow and sadness that your mom might experience or your dad might experience. That is also mind control. If they force an individual to rape or be raped, if they encourage and engage in corporal punishment, so if there's any sort of hitting or beating or physical punishment for not falling in line, if they instill dependency and obedience, if obedience is the first law of your gospel, that's undue influence. If it's not kindness and inclusion and tolerance and love, but it's obedience, red flag, my friend. If there's kidnapping, beating, torture, separation of families, imprisonment, and murder, obviously, run for the hills. That is definitely on the far spectrum of cult behavior and authoritarianism, but I need to include this because there are some family systems where this is a big deal. If you were raised in a home where corporal punishment or physical abuse or even torture was imposed on you, if you didn't obey, you were raised in an authoritarian system. Okay, information control. Let's like move into the next part of the bite model. Information control. So deception. If they deliberately withhold information, if they distort information to make it more acceptable, or they systemically lie to you, that is undue influence, my friend. Because remember, we can't make informed consent without all the information. If they minimize or discourage access to non-cult sources of information, including the internet, TV, radio, books, articles, newspapers, magazines, media, any critical information of the group, any information that comes from former members, that is information control. Run the other way. I know that whenever I was an active Mormon, we were taught to distrust anything we saw on the internet that wasn't approved by the church. And actually here recently, we're taught to distrust things that are put out by the church that are on the internet as well. Just the internet is untrustworthy. TV and radio, obviously, like they're outside of our religion, so they can't be trusted. And then media in general was vilified unless it was our own Deseret newsroom. Media was vilified. And this is from the earliest, earliest parts of the church. I mean, our first prophet was killed because he destroyed a printing press that dared to expose his polygamous practices. So distrust of media has been with Mormonism from the very, very beginning. Look at your own doctrine and see Are you taught to distrust media or outside sources or is critical information off the table? And are former members shunned or distrusted or do you throw shade on them and their words and just say they're led by Satan? They are corrupt. They're evil. They just want to sin. Do we discount them as lazy learners or apostates? Do we dehumanize them? Do we label them so that we don't trust them? Here's another one. Keep the members so busy they don't have time to think and investigate. If you find that your church takes up like your whole life with 
getting ready for actual meetings, getting ready to teach, if there's always service projects or you're cleaning toilets for free or you are doing other bits and pieces for the church, if there's always something you're doing and you find that you're so busy, you can barely take care of the things you need to take care of for your family and you find that you're stressed and you're anxious, that's actually a control mechanism because you don't have time to research. You don't have time to think critically. You just don't have time to do anything other than survive. This was definitely the story of my life. I often would have, you know, anywhere from one to three callings on top of an assignment to visit certain sisters in the ward. And then I would also have expectations for scripture study and prayer and temple attendance on my own time as well. And then if there's control through cell phone with texting and calls or internet tracking or in the LDS church, if people keep track of you through visiting teaching and report, if there's like a an internal watch system where people are basically like spying on you or checking in with you frequently and you don't get that alone time, like you can't fall off the grid, that can be control as well. All right, they compartmentalize information into outsider versus insider doctrines. We only trust doctrines that are from inside the organization, no information from outside. And we also ensure that the information is not freely accessible, even our own information. So for instance, in the last episode, I told you that I attended religious classes at BYU like all the time in my free time. And I studied books just like I do now. I studied all the time trying to become a better member and a better teacher because I was often put in teaching callings. And I enjoyed those immensely, but I wanted to be as informed as possible. However, I didn't know half of our history. It was not freely available. In fact, up until just like a decade and a half ago, a lot of it was locked in a vault in Ochre Mountain in Utah. Even people really high up in the church didn't have access to some of these documents. And it's actually because of apostasy in Sweden that some of these things have started to become unlocked. So thank you, Sweden. We love you. They control information at different levels and missions within the group. If you're a lay member kind of at the bottom, you have less access to information than people up at the top. Instead of information being shared and spread freely between everyone, there are insider secrets, if you will. And this is not widely known. It's not like the lay members know I'm not getting as much information as more advanced members. So in Scientology, for instance, you're having to pay money for those entry-level secrets. But as you go, you're paying to get more and more and more information and to free yourself from all of these limiting beliefs from being here on earth. So you're freeing your spirit and your mind. In Mormonism, you start off as a lay member and they talk about milk before meat. And I think this happens in Christianity as well, where you're given watered down truths or just like the happy, pretty truths first. And then we start talking about more difficult things as you get older. And for Mormons in particular, when I was 20, I went into the temple where I made covenants and I learned bits and pieces of 
the church that were not accessible to me whenever I was not an endowed member. And I've since learned that as you continue to progress, you have access to the bishop's handbook, for instance, if you're a male who's in a leadership position in the bishopric over a congregation. And then you have access to information in a stake president's handbook once you become that. And I would imagine that continues to go up as you move up the ranks of the leadership. The only problem is only men get to move up the ranks of the leadership, not women. And so men are having access to this information, women are not. And at some point, you have a second anointing where basically your calling and election are made sure, which means you get to go to heaven no matter what you do, as long as you don't walk away from the church. You can rape, you can lie, you can steal, you can be completely amoral, you can be a complete punk. And you get to still go to heaven as long as you don't leave the church. This presents, obviously, some serious, serious problems. And, of course, this information is controlled by the leadership. The leadership decides who needs to know what and when. We talked about encouraging spying on other members. So there's the buddy system. In Mormonism, that is the Visiting, Teaching, and Home Teaching program, which has been rebranded since I left. I think it's called Ministering now. But... You're supposed to check in on people. You're supposed to report back to leadership how they're doing. So this is a spying system. This happens at BYU, the honor code. You are held just as accountable as the person breaking the code of conduct if you don't tell on them. So if you see somebody, for instance, holding hands with someone of the same sex and you don't report it, and somebody found out that you knew, you can be held accountable and possibly disciplined or expelled just as much as the person holding hands with someone of the same sex. If you find out that one of your roommates is drinking, same thing. Or having sex, same thing. We're encouraged to spy on and report on other members of the church to hold them accountable. We're also supposed to self-report. We, as I said, go into bishop's interviews. So we have an interview with the head of our congregation at least once a year as a youth or young adult. And then once we get married, it's every two years. And we're supposed to self-report on our sexual activity. We're supposed to self-report on any deviant thoughts or behaviors we have. And we're supposed to talk to leadership about whether we believe we're worthy or not. It's almost like a a confession, but we're supposed to like expose all, if that makes sense, so that we can be pronounced worthy and clean and move forward. And then extensive use of cult-generated information and propaganda, like newsletters, magazines, journals, audio tapes, videotapes, YouTube, movies, and other media. So if all the movies that you're watching are generated by your organization, they control all the information that goes into those videos and magazines and newsletters and books and journals and all of it. If all of the media you're consuming for your religious education comes from your religion, it's very, very insular and it is so easy for us to get caught up in authoritarian control. 
If you find that people are misquoting statements or using them out of context from non-cult sources, and this was a huge one for me, I often heard how other religious leaders would say such great things about Mormonism, but when I would go and actually look up the entire quote online, it was often taken out of context or it was misquoted. In fact, a really glaring example when I started reading the Joseph Smith papers. So the Joseph Smith papers are like every single thing that Joseph Smith ever produced during his life. Um, It's these huge volumes of texts that the church historians are putting together. In the very beginning was a quote from a famous scientist. And as I was reading through it, his words were glowing But I noticed there were dot, dot, dots in there a lot. So he would say the Mormon church, dot, 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 is a beacon of whatever, right? Is a beacon of truth and and knowledge, dot, dot, dot. I went and looked up that quote. It was actually a really sarcastic, scathing piece he had written about the Mormon church. But if you use dot, dot, dots, technically... He said all of that, and the dot, dot, dot just means there's words here that we're not including, but to get to the point, he said this, dot, 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 then this, dot, 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 then that. So technically, it's correct, but it changes the meaning. They didn't misquote him. They just left out the parts that allowed us to understand that he was being so sarcastic, and he was being so scathing in his judgment of church history and church historians and their work. He basically called them dishonest. And in the quote, the way they put it, it made it sound like he thought that the church historians were some of the smartest, most brilliant people ever. Unethical use of confession. So if information about your sins is used to disrupt or dissolve identity boundaries, so if someone uses something that you confess as a way to shame or fear you into changing your identity boundaries, especially, for instance, this happens with LGBTQ people, if they come in and they confess same-sex attraction, it can be used to manipulate the way a person views themselves. And if they withhold forgiveness or absolution unless you fall in line, or if they manipulate your memory or create false memories, perhaps through gaslighting or something like that. All right, let's move on to thought control. You guys, this is going longer than I thought it would, but hang in there. I hope you're enjoying this. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. So thought control, they require members to internalize the group's doctrine as truth. If you have to believe that your religion is the truth, that there is no greater truth than your organization's truth, red flag. If they instill black and white thinking, which is it's either all true or it's not true, or, you know, we have the complete truth and other people do not. It's us versus them. It's right versus wrong. It's good versus evil definitely a red flag. If they change the person's name and identity. So for instance, in Mormonism, we often call people brother so-and-so 
or sister so-and-so. So I was sister Hales and Kevin was brother Hales. But it went further than that. When I went to the temple, I actually received a new name. And I was told that that was the name that I was going to be called in heaven. What I didn't know is that that name was the same name that everyone was receiving that day. So, you know, I was going to have a name that was shared with hundreds, if not thousands of people that day. And it repeated every month. So we're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. But it began to change my identity. For some fundamentalist Christian sects, you are told that you're putting off your own identity and taking on the name of Christ. And that everything you do has to be under the name of Christ. That you're no longer Terry Hales. You are now Christ, the body of Christ. You are now his eyes and arms and legs, and you must act as Christ would act, or however that is interpreted. That is changing your name and identity. Use of loaded language and cliches which constrict knowledge. They stop critical thoughts and they reduce complexities into platitudinous buzzwords. This happens all the time at general conference. We are given sound bites that are meant to provide thought-stopping techniques to critical thinking. Doubt your doubts. Choose joy. So they sound great on the surface, but they keep you from looking deeper because they're just little sound bites. So if you find people using buzzwords or cliches or loaded language, and we'll talk more about what loaded language is in one of these next episodes. Okay, they encourage only good and proper thoughts. If you're taught that there are bad thoughts to think and that you should stop them with a little hymn or a prayer, red flag. Hypnotic techniques are used to alter mental states, undermine critical thinking, and even to age regress the member. So there are some religions where you are literally put under hypnosis. I mean, they are absolutely upfront about the fact that you're going into a hypnotic state. This is often with like TV evangelists and healers. And yet we're learning more about hypnotic states and we're learning more about tones of voice and repetition and things that can open you up to being more susceptible to undue influence. And we will talk about that too. Memories are manipulated and false memories are created, often through gaslighting. That didn't happen. This is what I said. This is what actually happened. If you feel crazy, it's because you're being gaslighted. Teaching thought-stopping techniques, which shut down reality testing by stopping negative thoughts and allowing only positive thoughts, including denial, rationalization, justification, wishful thinking, chanting, meditating, praying, speaking in tongues, singing or humming. I was taught that my mind was a stage and if a thought came on it that was contrary to the gospel, that I could hum it away. I could sing it away. I could pray it away. I know several LGBTQ people were taught that they could pray the gay away. That every time they had a thought about being attracted to someone of the same sex, that they could just sing a hymn or they could pray and God would take that thought away. And granted, those are thought-stopping techniques and temporarily we can think about something different, 
but it keeps us from getting curious about our emotions and our thoughts and our beliefs and the internal turmoil we have whenever we have cognitive dissonance. Huge red flags there. Rejection of rational analysis, critical thinking, or constructive criticism. So if you're not allowed to think logically and if thinking logically is actually looked down on, we actually have a scripture that says, for when they are learned, they think they are wise and they hearken not to the counsels of God. So anytime someone was educated and used logic or critical thinking, this scripture would come up as, look at you, you think you're wise because you're learned and you are hearkening not to God. And it was meant as an insult and a shaming put down. In fact, I have a sign on one of my shelves downstairs in my living room that says all of my friends are feminist intellectuals and homosexuals because those were identified as the three main threats to the church. Feminists who wanted equal rights for women, homosexuals who wanted equal rights for LGBTQ people, and intellectuals historians that were looking critically at the history and applying logic, scientists, activists, public speakers, educators, people who were looking at the information and going, now, wait a minute, they were identified as primary enemies of the church. And I happen to be two of those things. So apparently I'm like a double enemy. And I'm okay with that because I like who I am. All right. They forbid critical questions about the leader, doctrine, or policy allowed. I told you in the last episode, I actually covenanted. I made an oath, I believed, with God to never speak evilly of the Lord's anointed. There are quotes that say, even if the criticism is true, we shouldn't criticize the leaders. That is authoritarian control. Labeling alternative belief systems as illegitimate, evil, or not useful. I think this happens in every single religion where we believe we have the truth and that other people do not have at least as much truth as we have. And last, emotional control. They manipulate and narrow the range of feelings. Some emotions and or needs are deemed as evil, wrong, or selfish. We've talked about this in so many episodes. Angers of the devil. Fear not, doubt not, vanity is a sin, thinking too much of yourself is a sin, self-love is a sin, jealousy or envy is a sin. If there's certain emotions you're not allowed to get curious with, then We are narrowing our range of emotions. And when we narrow our range of emotions, we cut off our ability to hear our inner wisdom. We cut off our intuition. This is a huge problem because when we cut off our access to our authentic self, we are more easily manipulated. We're more easily controlled. We lose who we authentically are. We lose our wants, our needs, our desires, our value system. And it's easier for someone to supplant their wants, their needs, and their value system into us. They teach emotion-stopping techniques to block feelings of homesickness, anger, doubt. Again, sing a hymn, say a prayer, meditate, 
They make the person feel that problems are always their own fault, never the leader's or the group's fault. All the time, you guys, when I left, people would say, well, you just misinterpreted that. Well, that was your own perfectionism. That was your fault. The church is perfect. The people aren't. I can't believe you let yourself get offended by imperfect people and turned away from God. It was always because I was wrong and I was flawed, not the belief system or the leader's interpretation of the belief system itself. It was never that the actual doctrine was harmful. It's that I misunderstood the doctrine. They promote feelings of guilt or unworthiness, such as identity guilt, or that you're not living up to your potential, or that your family is deficient. This happened a lot to people who were in single families, or families in which one parent was active, but the other parent was not. Your past is suspect. When I went to BYU, I was seen as less worthy by certain dating partners because I came from a convert family instead of a fifth-generation Mormon family. So my past was suspect because I hadn't grown up with the same rigidity as other people. I mean, granted, what I grew up with was pretty darn rigid, but... It was not quite the rigidity that some of you folks in Utah and some of you folks in fundamentalist Christian religions or Jehovah's Witnesses had to experience as children. My congregation was pretty liberal and my parents were pretty liberal because everyone was a convert, including my parents. And yet the doctrines were still pretty strict. Your affiliations are unwise. I used to be asked every time I would go in for a bishop's interview if I associated with any groups that went against church policy. That kept me from associating with LGBTQ groups and LGBTQ activism groups. I could lose my temple recommend, which essentially is the ability to have salvation and to live in the highest degree of heaven with my family and my kids. My family and kids were held hostage if I associated with LGBTQ groups or feminism groups. And now I'm sure that associating with Black Lives Matter would also fall into that that category. Your thoughts, feelings, and actions are irrelevant or selfish. If my needs aren't getting met, that's because I'm selfish. And my needs are irrelevant. If I need more, if I think this doesn't fit with my value system, if I think this is harmful, it's because of a deficiency with me. Social guilt and then also historical guilt. They also instill fear, such as the fear of thinking independently. The outside world. You guys, I was so scared to leave Mormonism. I had been told that the world was a big, bad place and that without Mormonism, it was so scary and I would be gobbled up and spit out, basically. It was so scary to think about leaving and not just living myself in this quote-unquote dark and dreary world, but also raising my kids 
in the world. I mean, it was a very real terror when I left that I was going to go live in this outside world that was cruel and unkind. And it's been like exactly the opposite of that, you guys. So many accepting, beautiful, wonderful people. Do bad things still happen? Absolutely. And there's so many good people that rise up. It's just like, it's just like, I think his name is Mr. Rogers. It's just like he said, you know, when bad things happen, look around you for the, for the helpers. Look for the people who are lifting other people up. It's not the scary place we're taught it is in religion. We have fear of enemies. Unseen enemies come to mind for me. That Satan and his minions wanted to see me fall. I was constantly surrounded by invisible demons and followers of Satan who were trying to get me to make bad decisions. That was so scary, you guys. I had so much anxiety about that. When I was left alone at home, I would lock all my doors and windows And not only that, like I would stay in a room with a blanket around me when my husband was deployed because I thought my house could possibly be full of demons. It was so scary. That was so harmful. They instill the fear of losing one's salvation, leaving or being shunned by the group, others' disapproval, and historical guilt. Number six, extremes of emotional highs and lows. There's love bombing and praise one moment and then declaring you are a horrible sinner the next. I can't tell you how many times people are like, no, the church's message is so positive and kind. Yes, on one side of the coin, there is all of this beautiful language about our potential about the ability to be with people we love for eternity, about God's love for us. But there's always an if, if we meet a certain requirement. Families can be together forever. If we obey Heavenly Father's plan. Many are called, but few are chosen. There are always stipulations. So on the one hand, we're told how beautiful and wonderful we are. And on the other side of that coin, sometimes by the very same person who said all the beautiful things, sometimes in the very same sermon, we're told that we're horrible sinners. That creates cognitive dissonance. And this is what I've learned about cognitive dissonance. When we're told that we're beautiful and worthy and loved and that we're enough, But we're also taught that we're carnal and devilish and evil and that God can't stand to be in our presence unless we are saved. Those two things in our brain create conflict and our brain does not like cognitive dissonance. So this is what happens. I'm sorry, you guys. I am going full on preacher here because I am so passionate about this. This is what happens when we're in cognitive dissonance. We have to reject one of those things in order to bring our lives, our beliefs, our actions into equilibrium. So we either reject the idea that we're worthy of love and belonging, which is what I did for 30 years of my life. Or we reject the belief system that tells us that we're not worthy of love and belonging. I tried rejecting 
my worth because it meant I got to stay in the group. I rejected myself because I was worried about being rejected by God. But when I finally realized through therapy and so much self-work that I was worthy of love and belonging, I could no longer accept a God that thought anything less of me. And I rejected the belief system that ever told me that I was anything less than beautiful and miraculous and worthy of love and belonging, even when I'm making mistakes, even when I'm growing, even when I'm learning, even when I'm imperfect. I am worthy of love and belonging. And I had to reject the belief system that told me I was not. That's what happens when we have both messages creating that cognitive dissonance inside of our heads. They'll use ritualistic and sometimes public confession of sins. So I told you about the yearly interviews with the bishop. Ritualistic confession of sins. Public confession of sins only happens if you confess in private and they decide you need a more public disciplinary council in front of a panel of 12 men. Barbaric and absolutely not okay. Phobia indoctrination, inculating irrational fears about leaving the group or questioning the leader's authority so that there's no happiness or fulfillment possible outside the group. A few years ago, we had an apostle in our church say, where will you go? What will you do? There's no real happiness outside the church. This is where we're happy. This past week, we had a youth speaker, a popular youth speaker in the Mormon church, tell the youth in the church to look at the people inside the church and see how happy they are. And then look at the people who leave, who are grieving and unraveling trauma to look at them and see how miserable they are. Basically telling them there's no happiness outside the group. I don't care how miserable you are. You are happier here than you will ever be out there. That there are terrible consequences if you leave. Hell, demon possession, incurable diseases, accidents, suicide, insanity, 10,000 reincarnations, etc. I was told that I would get cancer or that I would die in a car accident or someone I loved would die in a car accident in order to make me repent or make my kids come back to the gospel. That's not love. That's control. I was told I'd lose my business. I'd endure a horrible divorce, that bad things were coming for me, that my kids would be delinquent. That's not love. That is control. They're shunning of those who leave. And there's the fear of being rejected by family and friends. And I don't care if shunning is a doctrine or if it's just something that happens because now you're an outsider and you can't be trusted. The fear of losing family and friends is one of the biggest fears when we deconstruct because of authoritarian control. 
There's never a legitimate reason to leave. Those that leave are called weak, undisciplined, unspiritual, worldly, brainwashed by family or their therapist, or seduced by money, sex, or rock and roll. I can't tell you how many people told me I left because I wanted to sin. No. You can stay in the religion and sin secretly. Plenty of people do it all the time. I left because in order to stay would require me to sacrifice my conscience, to sacrifice my integrity on the altar of Mormonism, and I could no longer do that. But these are the things I was told. that I was just weak. I was a lazy learner. I was an unruly child. I was undisciplined. I never had a testimony in the first place. I had been lying my whole life about my devotion to the church. I hope you can hear the residual anger that this continues to happen to people. This topic fires me up because this is just a list of harmful, abusive practices. And I endured many of them, not all of them, but I endured many of them. And I work with people every week who have gone through these same things. I've had people tell me religious trauma isn't a thing. This is why we have religious trauma. It's a thing. It's real. We have real CPTSD and real PTSD symptoms. Because similar to if we had been raised in an authoritarian political regime, That's what we're talking about here. And like I said, it's on the sliding scale. Some of us are actually physically punished. Some of us are actually physically tortured whenever we don't adhere to the religious rules. And some of us are just shamed and made afraid to be individual. But all of it is harmful and all of it is traumatic. This was meant to be a lot shorter than I think it ended up being. Because I got fired up and I wanted to tell stories. I wanted you guys to really hear what this sounds like. I know many of you can relate. I know listening to this was probably triggering. Thank you so much for sticking with me. It is so important to understand this. Because in order for us to be mentally free... In order for us to actually live authentically and to keep ourselves safe from mind control tactics, we have to know what they look like. Especially those of us who have come from authoritarian backgrounds, whether we've come from authoritarian family systems or authoritarian religions, we're so much more susceptible because this is the way we were conditioned. We're susceptible Unless we get really conscious about what mind control looks like, we are susceptible to undue influence again. It's just like someone who's been in an abusive relationship. If we don't heal that pattern in our life, if we don't work through it, if we don't figure out how it's changed us and what limiting beliefs we have, We're susceptible to getting with another abusive partner who's going to just continue the same pattern because the pattern is what we're familiar with. It's what feels safe, even though it's harmful. 
So for me, I found myself leaving a high-demand religion and clinging to a job that had some of the same authoritarian control mechanisms in place. And as I learned about the BITE model, I started noticing that I was part of several organizations that were authoritarian. I started noticing I had family relationships that were authoritarian. Learning about this not only helped me free myself from authoritarian control and indoctrination from my religion, but allowed me to set boundaries with family members, allowed me to set boundaries with organizations that had that authoritarian control and to keep myself separate from the control and to push back and to think critically or to leave altogether. I believe that there are very few organizations that don't have any authoritarianism in them. So we're not looking for perfect organizations. We're not looking for perfect relationships or family systems, but we're looking to take back our power, to be able to critically think, to be able to recognize mind control when it's happening and to then question it and turn on our critical thinking ability so that we can push back. I honestly think sometimes people use control and they don't mean to. It's just how they were raised and they were raised that way because their parents were raised that way. Authoritarian control was an easy way to manipulate and control people, to get them to fall in line and to get cooperation, and it's also traumatic. So we're in a day and age where we're really lucky. We're changing the way that we do things. It's painful, but we're making progress. And once we make progress and we allow ourselves to break free from chains of undue influence, we get more diversity. It's okay to be different. We have more creativity. We have more vulnerability. We have more ability to innovate solutions to age-old problems. It's so important that we do this work, that we start recognizing authoritarianism and we start pushing back on it by being aware of it and then allowing ourselves to get curious and critically think. Thank you, thank you for joining me this week. Thank you for taking time out of your day, out of your Sunday to spend time with me and to just explore these topics. This is one of the greatest joys of my life right now, sitting and talking with you about these topics, expressing my passion, expressing my stories, telling you what I'm observing in the world. I love getting to do this with you and it means so much to me that you're here with me. Have a wonderful fourth of july week if you're here in the united states and if not have a wonderful week pulling apart authoritarianism and becoming more free together we're making such a big difference in the world we are the change makers and it feels really good to be united with you and all of the change makers out there in the world who are dismantling systems of oppression and creating more space for freedom. I'll see you next Sunday.